Our scripture this morning comes to us from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Listen now for a word from God. There's no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people, for I know your eagerness to help, and I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year, you and Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready, as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift that you have promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Good and loving God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you too for time set aside to study it. God, I pray that whatever words we would hear this morning would come from you and not from me. In Jesus' name, amen. So I met my friend Joey on a baseball field, and it was actually during a championship game in which I was pitching. Now, based on that sentence, you're going to think, wow, Pastor Garrett was really good at baseball. But I want you to know this was like sixth or seventh grade, and uh, I was only pitching because I couldn't play anywhere else. They tried me at first base, I couldn't do that. They tried me at third base, I couldn't do that. Uh, they were not going to try me at shortstop uh, or anywhere else, and so they would put me on the pitcher's mound and I would do okay there and then uh, if they had nowhere else they'd stick me in right field and told me you know basically try not to mess up but I was on the pitcher's mound for this championship game and um, I was actually pitching pretty well and um, I, you know I was a pretty intense competitor um, I was also a sixth grader and I, I had a lot of hormones rushing through me and a lot of ego and a lot of pride and I really really wanted to win well, there was a, a couple of plays where I, I had given up some hits, and I, I looked over 
at the bench, the opposing team's bench, which my coaches always told me not to do. They always said, if you give up a hit, you put your head down, you walk back, and you focus on your next throw. And I, I didn't learn that lesson. So I look over at the bench, and I see the whole team cheering. And there was one person in particular that was cheering a little bit more than all the others. And he's kind of pointing his finger at me, and he's, he's just got a look on his face that I just didn't like. And that was Joey. When Joey was up, I made sure that I struck him out. And he came up again, and I struck him out again. And then he came up a third time that night, and I struck him out again. And as we're going through the, the, the line, we actually ended up winning the championship and celebrating. And as we're going through the line to do our good games, uh, I gave everyone a good game except for Joey because I remembered the look and the way that he jeered at me when I gave up that hit. And I said a few words to him, and I, I'm not able to repeat those words here this morning, but if you ask me after I retire, I'll be glad to share with you what I said to Joey. And uh, we had a few words there. There was a little spat, and then we moved on. I still have the trophy, by the way. <laughs> my, um, my mom, flash forward a few weeks, my mom tells me she got a new job. She's going to be working uh, at, in the school cafeteria. And she said, this is great news because she can take me home from school and I can just go, you know, at the middle school and wait in the cafeteria until uh, she finished, which was like 30 minutes after school ended. And then she could take me home. It's very convenient, blah, blah, blah. And she said, also good news, your friend Joey is going to be there as well because I'll be working with his mother, Debbie. I got a little nervous when she said this to me and I thought, okay, well, that'll be fine. It's just 30 minutes after school. Well, the, the, the first day, like before school, the first day that year, um, my mom and Debbie had talked, and Debbie had told my mom what I said to Joey in the good game line after our championship win, and my mom came to me and said, I know what you said, you need to go apologize to him. And so this first day uh, of school, after you know classes had ended, I went down to the cafeteria where my mom said I had to go, and I had to sit at a table and say sorry to Joey. And uh, I didn't mean it at the time. Um, I was forced to apologize, and I did it. And uh, Joey and I, for the next couple of weeks, sort of sat at a table together, and we didn't really talk a whole lot. There was kind of that grudge. There was tension. And it was tough. It was tough, but, you know, we got through it. Well, a few weeks after that, my mom told me that we were switching churches, and guess whose church we were going to start going to? Joey's. Uh, Debbie Shannon was uh, very good at inviting us to things, and so we start going to Joey's church, so I have to start sitting through Sunday school with Joey, and then I had to sit through church with him because all the youth sat in the same spot at church, and I started doing all these things with Joey, and you know, there was still some tension and a grudge, and then one day my mom told me I was, I was going to go to a lock-in at the church. I didn't have a choice, and I showed up early, and uh, lo and behold, Joey showed up early too as if our mothers were coordinating this, and uh, we started to help set up together. So we were moving tables and chairs, we were setting up food, we were setting up games, we're doing all of these things together, and throughout the course of that day, I have to say, we got a little bit closer. And then the lock-in came, and you know, if you've ever been to a lock-in with middle schoolers, you get like a little delirious together, and that's actually a bonding moment, I think. You know, you sort of all collectively lose your minds with sugar and no sleep and all the chaos, and you sort of come together. Well, Joey and I, we were like friends sort of after that. There's still a little bit of tension, but at the end of the night, we exchanged baseball caps, which felt like a middle school way of saying, hey, 
were buds, and um, we went our ways. And a few weeks later, you know, this is all over the course of like eight months, a few weeks later, my mom said that I had to sign up to help out at the church's Christmas experience. And the Christmas experience at the church I grew up in was this sort of wagon ride around our church property. And the church sat on 133 acres, and most of that was farmland, but there was like a little wooded section. And this wagon, um, actually multiple wagons, would take people around during the Christmas experience, and they would stop at these different stations. And it, it's similar to like the pop-up pageant that we do here at Fort Street, where we read the big portions of the Christmas story, and uh, we kind of act them out. Well, this was all acted out via a, a wagon ride at these different stations, and in between stations, you would sing Christmas carols, and you would have hot cocoa, and you know, eat uh, donuts and drink cider, things like that. And it was a huge, huge community event, and we used it as a fundraiser to help, you know, the rest of the community. Well, my mom told me that I would be helping out with that, and she told me that I would be at the same station with Joey, and Joey was going to play the role of Joseph, and I would play the role of the angel Gabriel. And so for three weekends in what had to be the coldest December of my life, I sat in a little tent with Joey. It was more like a booth, like a wooded booth, and acted out this part of the Christmas story with him as wagon after wagon after wagon arrived. And I would come out and I would say something like, do not be afraid. And then I would give the announcement that Gabriel gave to Joseph. During that time, Joey and I really, really bonded. We bonded over the fact that we were freezing, like we couldn't feel our toes, couldn't feel our fingers. Uh, we bonded over the fact that we never got our lines right. And so people coming through would, you know, kind of like, turn their faces up and like, what, what did he just say? I don't think that's in the Bible, you know? Uh, we, we would laugh about that, you know? It, it just was uh, an experience that really brought us together, and I'm happy to say that to this day, um, Joey and I are still friends. He was uh, best man in my wedding, I was best man in his wedding, and uh, the relationship has been very awesome ever since then. We're living in what I think is a, is a pretty divided world, or at least it, the perception that we have about the world is that it's divided. Uh, I think sometimes it's hard to tell because media takes up so much space in our minds and our daily lives. It's hard to know what the truth is. Maybe we're not as divided as we think, but it certainly seems to be the case, and especially as we come up on another beloved election year. And the signs start to go in the yards, and the posts start to go on social media, and the tensions begin to rise. You begin to feel the division in this country. And I think within that division, we all sort of have a common hope. At least I, I hope we have a common hope. And that is to come together to solve some of these issues that we're all facing whether they're economic issues, whether they're climate issues, uh, whether, whether they're, they're issues that I don't even know about. I think that we're all trying to find a way to come together through those. And often the way that we do it is we put our heels down and we share our opinions and we try to fight. And what ends up happening is we further divide ourselves. And I think in all of this fighting and in all of this searching, we're wanting 
and antidotes. How do we cut through it? How do we find a way through all of this division toward healing? Paul, the writer of most of the New Testament, or perhaps the supposed writer of most of the New Testament, was a tent maker and a missionary. Before that, he uh, was a Pharisee and worked within the temple to not only help write law, but also to enforce the law. And after he had this wonderful conversion on the road to Damascus, uh, in which he sort of encounters the risen Jesus and has a complete change of heart, he becomes a missionary and a tent maker. And he leaves his position at the temple and he goes off to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to anyone that will listen but also to plant churches all around the ancient Near East. On one of his stops, actually, I, I think it was one of his first stops, he, he began in, in Corinth. And Corinth was this city by the sea, and uh, very, very beautiful. You can, you can still visit Corinth, actually. Um, it's right on the sea, wonderful weather, and it was, a, it was a hub of trade and commerce, so there's a lot of merchants there. There's a, a lot of rich folks there. There's a lot of diversity. There's a lot of... Uh, really great food there. There's so much happening there, and Paul really, really fell in love with Corinth. And while he was there, he, he begins preaching the gospel. He's selling tents. He's doing his thing, and he falls in love so much with these people that he plants a church. And th this is the, the church of the Corinthians, and he gets them going, and, and everything's going great. This church is growing. This church is multiplying. They are starting new programs. They're doing all of the things that you would expect a new church to do, and they're worshiping together, and there's a ton of unity. Well, after Paul leaves, he has to go, and he, he's called on, as missionaries are, and he, uh, he takes a, a one journey, you know, somewhere. I, I'm not going to remember where, and then he goes to Ephesus, and while he's in Ephesus establishing the Ephesian church, he gets a letter from the Corinthians, and this letter comes from his partner Timothy, and it, and it essentially says, we don't really have the letter, we just reconstruct it based on Paul's letters to the Corinthians, but essentially what this letter says is that things are not great in Corinth after Paul left. In fact, there are some lawsuits that are going on between the church and people in the public, and then also people in the church are kind of suing each other and fighting, and then uh, there's disputes over Paul's teaching. People are wondering, you know, did he really say it that way? And is that what he was supposed to say? And who does he think he is to say all of that and to teach those things? And so they're fighting about his teaching and what he said, and then there was the case, you can read about this actually in, in 1 Corinthians 5, I believe, uh, where th th there was a guy who was accused of being incestuous and, you know, that got through the congregation and really divided them because they didn't know what to do and, and it just was a giant. All of the unity that Paul had worked for, all of the things they had done to build that community had sort of just crumbled in the months after he left and he was really heartbroken by this. It's not what you want to hear. He spent so much time there. He gave him so much energy. He had so much hope for them, and that hope had carried him on these other missionary journeys. And to get a letter like that was just devastating. And so he thought about it for a while, and then he wrote them back what is called a tearful letter. I've also heard it called an angry letter. Um, and that is 1 Corinthians, and you can go read that in your Bible. But in the letter, he essentially is, is trying to correct them 
and help them out with some of these conflicts that they're having, teaching them to unify, telling them to, you know, don't, don't worry about this or that, focus on these things. And, and the, the place where he lands, if you remember that famous passage in 1 Corinthians, is on love. And he says to them, he says, remember, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not boastful. It is not proud. It is not... We've heard that one a million times. But in the letter, Paul is pleading with them to come back together, to set aside their differences, to unify, to remember that they love one another. And so he sends the letter off with Timothy, and he keeps doing his thing, and a little while later, Timothy comes back with a response. And lo and behold, the Corinthian church listened. They listened to Paul. They took his tearful letter that he wrote to them. They digested it. They read it aloud to one another. And they heard him. And they want to repent. They want to come back together. And they're looking for ways to do this. And so they send a response to him, letting him know that they're ready to listen, but that, that they're also ready for more instruction, that they want a way forward. And so he gives it to him, and he writes the letter of 2 Corinthians. And you, you can go and you can read through the letter, but in the part that we read for today, he kind of comes to what I think is the climax of the letter. And in this climax, he's asking them to give a gift, a monetary gift, to the church in Jerusalem. And the church of Jerusalem was uh, a Jewish church that was established by the apostles and um, probably leftover disciples from Jesus' ministry that was meeting regularly, doing church together, and uh, was decidedly not a Gentile church. The church in Corinth was a Gentile church, and there was a split at the time between, you know, if you were Jewish or you were Gentile, who got into heaven, who didn't get into heaven, who was blessed, who wasn't blessed, all of these things. And Paul is coming to this Corinthians church, these Gentiles, and he's saying, we want you to give a gift to your Jewish brothers and sisters in Jerusalem because they're suffering great persecution. And they were. Rome was persecuting them at the time. There were other groups persecuting them in the city at the time. They were marginalized, poor, and put out. And these Corinthians, they didn't experience a lot of persecution. I mean, they persecuted themselves with their infighting and their inability to unify and, and focus on something other than themselves. But outside of that, they were doing great. And many of them were wealthy merchants. Many of them were doing well. And so Paul, in the climax of this letter to them, as they're asking, how do we come back together? How do we sort of sort through all of this? Tells them, I need you to give. And he's not telling them to give because, you know, he wants the church to get that money. I mean, he does want the church to get that money, but he doesn't have a vested interest necessarily. I think he's telling them to give because that is the antidote to their division. He's saying to them, you know, you've been so focused on who was right or wrong about this theological argument and who was right or wrong about this legal dispute, and you've been so focused on this problem and that problem that you have with yourselves, and he's saying the way through that is get your head in the right spot, and focus on someone other than yourself. And the way you can do that very tangibly, very easily, is to give. 
And I don't think it's the perfect antidote. I don't think it's going to solve all their problems. I don't think that's what Paul's saying, but I think he's giving them the first tiny baby step toward coming back together and unifying. He's saying, give a gift to another church. Bridge the gap between Jew and Gentile with this. Give from your richness to those who don't have as much and do it together. And then he adds to that, he says, and don't do it begrudgingly, don't do it out of duty, don't think that this is your responsibility and that God is going to strike you down if you don't do this, none of that. Do it because you want to do it. Do it because you love to do it. Do it because you can't do anything other than give. That's the first step through your division. Step outside of yourself. Give and serve another. It's the time of year in the church where we ask people to give. And, um, you know, this is, this is often uh, thought of in terms of money, almost exclusively, and, and sometimes the, the phrase that we throw around is time, talents, resources, things like this. And I, and I will say, I, I, think, um, I think it's good to have these talks, but I know it can make some of us uncomfortable, you know. We shift in our seats. It's hard to be asked to give. It's sometimes hard to ask to give. But I do want to say, you know, if you're feeling called to something here, or if you're looking through a way through division in your own life, giving is a really, really great first step. And I'm not going to tell you that God is telling you that, you know, the, the best place for you to give is to Fort Street Presbyterian Church, and you need to give us your time, your talents, and your resources, and, and that's going to heal you. That's, that is not what I'm saying. But I do want you to know that there's a grace that's given when we give gifts. We heard earlier stories of uh, people receiving gifts and giving gifts, and many of you have done that, and hopefully you've been thinking about ways that you've done that, that you know the grace that's involved if you've given a good gift or you've received one. There is often something so powerful when we give back. It can be healing, too. So I want you to think about ways that you might give here or elsewhere in the community that's outside of yourself. And if I can just give you one plea for what we're doing here, you know, um, because I am invested in this place and, and we do have a lot going on. You know, we just hired a new director of music ministry and he's going to be asking you to sing in the Fort Street Singers, uh, I think pretty regularly, right? If you want to give back, if you have the talent to sing, um, give back in that way. That's a great way to lend a gift that God has given you and to share it with others. That requires your time, requires your presence, it requires your joy. You know, I don't want you to do it out of responsibility or duty. I want you to love coming up here and singing. That's a way to give back. If you have ideas, as Kate said earlier, about the open door and ways that we might continue to serve the most vulnerable in the city of Detroit, come to an open door work group meeting. Give us your ideas. Give back your creativity, your imagination, your love for helping and serving. And if you've been blessed financially, 
you might give that way as well. There are so many ways that we can be called to give, and it doesn't have to be a huge, lavish gift. It doesn't have to be, I don't sing, so you will not see me singing with the Fort Street Singers. But, you know, there are so many ways that you've been blessed that God has given you gifts, and we're just asking you to consider ways that you might give back, however that is and however the Spirit is moving you. Let's pray. Good and loving God, thank you again for this day. God, thank you, too, for the gifts that you have given us, God, and we just ask that you would teach us to give in return. In Jesus' name, amen.